So, Bob, as usual, we have a lot of emails from the patrons that are addressed to both you and me, and I thought we would read those emails and answer them. What do you say, Bob? I say, let's read those emails and then answer them. Yeah. Hopefully coherently. Hopefully coherently. And whenever I introduce you on the podcast, I always want to refer to you as the way we really refer to you as Bobby G. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. It's not my professional stage name, but right. Yeah. I, I I don't think I ever just say hey Bob. That's that's not usually no what, no. What we say. Um, well, you know, I in my phone you're Kirky Joe. Yeah, I mean, you know, when you have good friends, you don't call them by their real name. That's just a that's just a rule. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's funny in college, people called me Honda for so long and so pervasively that uh, I had a friend who I thought was pretty close, and one time someone called me Kirk. And she was like, why were they calling you Kirk? And I, I was like, what do you mean? She's like, she's like, well, why were they calling you Kirk? I said, well, that's my first name. And she said, this whole time, I thought you were kind of like Cher, where you just had one name, or it was just Honda. <laughs> you know, I heard people call you Honda. I just can't do it. Really? Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't like referring to people by their last name. It feels disrespectful. I could, I could see Kanye Gettle. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. It, it there's a to me it reminds me of playing sports because when you play sports no one right. ever called anyone by their first name. It was right. always your last name. All right. First email. Uh Greta, she writes, I've always heard that if your therapist cannot resolve your problems within 1 year, then whatever they are doing is not effective and you should move on. Sounds reasonable to me. But in listening to your podcast, you talk about how people are in therapy with you for years, and, and that's normal to you. How would a person ever know if they just have an ineffective therapist and their issues should have been resolved long ago? End of email. Bob, what do you think? Gettle, give me an answer. Yeah, shit. The pressure. Uh, coach. Um Well, I don't know that there is an easy answer to that question, though I do think that the Mm, the notion that therapy takes a, a year is erroneous and full of there's problems with that uh and i've been a ther- uh therapy client i've been a client in therapy for 30 years uh with my current therapist for three and a half um and i think that's okay um i was just thinking about a client that i'm seeing these days the other day and just thinking about something that I heard you say, I don't know, maybe a year and a half ago, where you're like, well, you know, therapy takes a long time. Therapy does take a long time. You're talking about, well, the way I think about it is we're talking about people's attachment wounds. So we're talking about their really deep core um, view of the world. And I don't know that we have a treatment that, I don't know of any evidence-based treatment that, you know, a year is good. Maybe there is one out there, but I'm not aware of one. Um, So... The second part of the question had to do with how do you know if your therapist, you know, how do you know it's not a bad therapist? I think I'd look at other clues. How do I feel when I'm with this person? Do I feel like I can be candid and open? How do they perceive me? Do they have care, curiosity, and interest in me? Are they judging? Um, What's the quality of our interaction? Do I feel um, connected to the person? Do I, if I have disappointments, do I feel free to voice them? Um, 
And depending on how my therapist would respond to, like, say, a disappointment, that might be a clue that they're not a good therapist. If, Like, if therapists get defensive, which, you know, everybody does, but if they get defensive and then there's no move back towards repair, then maybe that would be a sign that they're not a good therapist. But I don't think that you can just hang your hat on, well, I've been in therapy for a year and I'm not better yet, so must be a bad therapist. I think that by itself is not a good data point. Right. I totally agree. Just to reiterate some of the things you're saying, this notion of resolving problems within a year is a silly parameter. It's basically coming from a place of a lack of understanding of what therapy is. And it denies it. The, the lack of understanding is so huge <laughs> because, one, as you're saying, there's a ton of evidence that long-term therapy is necessary for things like attachment issues and personality disorders and, and really just just a variety of things. I mean, even like a good CBT therapists will say that you should break away from the manualized 10-week program uh, to actually address the um, the issues. And it also is a lack of understanding of why people come to therapy. If If someone comes to therapy and they say, so I have a simple trauma problem where I was in a car accident and I'm having mild symptoms. Well, yeah, if it takes 15 years to treat that, then and that's the only thing you ever worked on, then, yeah, we would say there's something wrong there. But the typical reasons why people come into therapy are such that it takes 30 years to get halfway down the road. There are styles of therapy where it's you're talking about what is good in life and who am I as a human being. These are not things that you can, uh, oh, you know, well, 51 weeks of therapy and I'm done. Um, it also plays into notions that we've talked about before that are propagated in our society that are stigmatizing to both therapy and to clients and to people who need help. It's this notion of like, look, pal, if you can't get your shit together within a year, what's wrong with you? Or look, therapist, if you've been stringing this client along for a year, you're just you're just trying to milk them for money. Or look, kid, if you if if you think that you know, being in therapy for that long, you're addicted to therapy and dependency is bad. You know, just these ridiculous notions that uh, I, I'm just getting so tired of. So this notion that, like, you're supposed to finish therapy uh, in under a year, it, it, it just plays into all that stuff. Now, you could also just have a total misunderstanding of what therapy is and not have a stigma around it. Maybe that's where it's coming from. But, yeah, this other question of, you know, how would a person ever know if they just have an ineffective therapist and their issues should have been resolved long ago? Bob brought up some excellent questions that I'll just basically reword. Um, the questions to ask yourself are, is it helping? You know, like, for example, people will often say, well, honestly, I, I feel better than I did last year, or I feel more understood now. My relationships are better, obviously lower symptoms. I feel like it's worth my time. Now, therapy can make you feel worse because that's just one, sometimes the growth process. And, but sometimes it could be an indication that therapy actually isn't working. 
uh, and a common example that I often yell at my supervisees about is that if you are not aware of how to treat trauma, you can re-trigger people by just talking, just headlong, you know, moving into trauma narratives without doing the prerequisite steps. And so sometimes therapy can be very harmful and to, can feel very bad, very dysregulating, dissociative, distressful. Um, you can even become suicidal as a result of a therapist not knowing how to treat trauma correctly. So, but the, the, so the, the question that I always pose, and which is just basically what you're saying, Bob, is, you know, is it helping? And if you can't answer that question, that could mean a number of things. One, it could mean that it's not helping. Two, it could mean that you actually don't know why you're in therapy and you don't know what helping means, you and your therapist. Three, it could mean that therapy is helping, but you are, uh, your perspective is such that it's hard for you to see how it's helping. Um, you know, and that's a dicey sort of thing because it's like, well, um, yes, it's it's like a thing a cult leader would say to you of like, you know, it it's not working because you're just looking at it wrong. <laughs> um, so, of course, that's a complicated thing. But the other question to ask yourself is, is it worth the effort to you? Um, you know, because it is it is effort. It's money. It's time. It's annoying in some ways. And so is it worth it? Is it worth that ever? Another question to ask, which is what Bob was saying, is does your therapist have a good understanding of your goals and, and, and what you want to change in your life and how you're going to get there? This is what we call the therapeutic alliance, which is comprised of three components, which is do you agree on the goals? Do you agree on the task to get to that goal? And do you have a good bond? Do you have a good attachment? And can your therapist explain the therapeutic path that you're on? Uh, I frequently just compulsively will uh, say the path that I see the client on, not only as a way to contextualize, but also as a way to inspire them and make them feel like, look how far you've come. I just did this uh, in a session the other day. Uh, the clients seemed to be demoralized a little bit, and I felt compelled to point out that a few years ago, they wouldn't have been able to do what they had done. And although they still see issues that they want to, you know, grow and change, they've come so far in that time. And, and so uh, if, if your therapist can't explain, like, this is where you've been, this is where you are, this is where we're going, or at least uh, the therapist could at least throw it out there as a suggestion, like, well, here's my perspective. I'd like to hear your perspective, client. If your therapist can't do that at all, then, yeah, I mean, there's a problem there. And this is one of those things that I try to drill into my supervisees, which is that you've probably never taken a class on how to answer that question. You've probably never even you've never read an article. You've never read research. It's just one of those therapist uh, functions that are critical to know that I just developed on my own over time, trial and error. And... Uh, so you can't depend on graduate school or supervision to teach you that. You have to, you have to have a good supervisor that knows the gaps in your education or in your in your path. And and so what I do is is I I'll just do exercises. It's like okay, think of a client. Okay, that client just asked you, what are we doing? Okay, write down what you would say. And almost all the time, I'll, I just get blank stares. These students are like, uh. 
now they're not stupid, but they just haven't been taught. And this is one of those things that is a skill that you just have to learn trial by fire or, you know, have a good instructor or something. Anyway, so questions to ask yourself, is it helping? Is it worth the effort? And does your therapist have a good understanding of your goals and what you want to change and how you're going to get there? And in closing, what I'll say to Greta is, in my opinion, most people should be in therapy at least half of their life because it just helps. I, the, the older I get, or I don't know, the more I think about it, I can't think of a single person that I have ever met in my entire life that didn't need at least 20 years of therapy. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I just don't, I just don't know anyone. And I'm not talking like icing on the cake. I'm talking about fundamental issues of, of past traumas that relational traumas or otherwise that affect us. So I just can't think of a single human being. I mean, what we categorize as like secure attachment, it, even then it's, it, it has this implication of just like, well, you're good. But I've never met a, a totally securely attached. I would ne- I've never met anyone that I would characterize as like completely securely attached uh, or, you know, of secure attachment style completely. So it's, it's just that mostly or something or in most situations, you know, but that still leaves, say, 40 percent of situations where you're uh, struggling, you're suffering from issues being triggered in you. But anyway, so I hope that answers your question, Greta. Any you know, it's interesting what you're saying. Part? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Well, um, I think when you say that, though, you're you're just on the heels of positive psychology, right? Which is about how to make life better. You know, therapies come from the world of you got a problem, got to do something to fix it. And psychology hasn't really paid as much attention to how do we help people enhance the quality of their lives how do we help them have more secure connection with people or more joy or satisfaction? Um, um, so just the idea that a person might need 20 years of therapy doesn't mean that a person has pathology. It means that this might be part of what it what it takes to be optimal. I'm thinking about that Maslow triangle, you know, where self-actualization is at the, start, at the top of the thing. It's like um, making a life that's meaningful and purposeful and fulfilling and satisfying. Therapy can help with that, but it doesn't mean that I'm a basket case. I'm a fucking mess. Yeah, or we're all basket cases. In or a way. we all are. <laughs> there's, just, there's just nothing odd about the fact that we all have issues. We all overreact. We all are hurt and will have defense mechanisms that will shoot, shoot ourselves in the foot. We all lose perspective. We all need extra help with validation and being heard and understood. We all need that extra space to just vent about, oh, <laughs> speaking about venting, I, I don't know if my wife would be entirely happy with me talking about this, but oh. but it's not bad. But this morning, she was out on a walk with the dog and she comes in to, um, fr- from this, you know, she comes in the door and she's the, possibly the angriest I've ever seen her in my life. And she was screaming about this jogger who was, okay, if you're listening to this in the future, we're, we're smack dab in the middle of COVID right now. And cases are, you know, just as strongly being spread throughout society. And me and my wife are being, me and my family are extremely cautious about what we're doing. We're, we're 
we're really trying not to catch this thing and spread it. And there are all these complications. You know, it's not just getting the flu. There's all sort. You could have brain damage and lung damage, and and obviously people die. So we're we're pretty we're pretty buttoned up about that. And when she was on her walk, she comes in and she says, "This runner, this woman was running toward me on the street, and she did a farmer blow." And then spit, and all the spray went, like, in my direction. And why would you do that? So we live in a neighborhood where there aren't that many people. It's, it's, it's not a, a huge—it's pretty suburban. And particularly when you go walking at 7.30 in the morning, there's hardly anyone out. So she, this other jogger, if she wanted a farmer blow and spit, which I get, honestly— you, you, I wish people would just bring a handkerchief with them, honestly, but whatever. You could have waited a little bit of time, gotten sufficiently away from some. Why would you be basically within, you know, a farmer blow spray range of another human being and one farmer blow and then spit? Uh, <laughs> and because... Uh, it's just so stupid. I mean, how how dumb do you have to be? So, because what if she gets it because of that stupid thing? It's essentially like someone just walking up to you on the subway and just spitting in your face. Like, think about it for a second, person. And uh, she was very upset. And so, I don't know. When I said the word venting, like we all need a therapist to vent to, it just it just reminded me of. Well, she's got you. Of a few few minutes ago, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was right there with her on that. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I hope that we don't get COVID because of that yeah. person. That would be pretty awful. I agree uh, with you. I'd be furious. Uh, patron Stephen from Russia has a similar question. He writes. Thanks for your podcast. I've thanks to your podcast, I've started seeking therapy to help me with anxiety and found a therapist that I like. I've been seeing him for 2 months. I enjoy talking with him, but I always feel like we are not going anywhere. He doesn't give me any practical advice. We are just analyzing different situations without any general discourse, any general course. I like conversations, but I feel more and more like he is not the right person to help me. Maybe it's okay to have those thoughts that early into therapy. Should I stick with him and hope it will work out? End of email. What do you think, Bob? Oh, this is what you want to talk about. Yeah. Like what's, I think what's most interesting about this whole thing is, um, you know, I, I don't know if I mentioned this to you before, but I watched this program in 60 Minutes once where um, they did a... Um, a segment on this culture in China, I think it was China, where two people who are engaged in a business transaction will sit next to each other with a blanket over their laps and carrying on, um, you know, a relatively superficial conversation about, you know, the weather or whatever. They will, using their hands underneath the blanket, they will um, conduct their transaction, but it's private. Nobody can see it. And these hand gestures are, um, it's like a language that, you know, it's understood. So when I do this, I don't know what the gestures look like. I don't know what that means. But in any case, this is how people transact uh, a bartering, an arrangement, like a trade, right? So the reason I think that, that, the reason that comes to mind is because 
in therapy, oftentimes this is what's happening is we are talking about, we're analyzing this thing. We're talking about this situation, you know, with my sweetheart or whatever, right? And in that, there is something that's happening beneath the surface between two people. And the great thing about therapy is it's a relationship that's set up for self-reflection. In other words, we get to talk about what is it like to sit together. We get to talk about what is the experience of this. And one of the things that Stephen is noticing is that a bunch of questions arise. And if I'm hearing right, and I may be making some assumptions here, but let's presume I'm not. If I'm hearing right, he's saying these things go off in me and they stay inside me. I find myself not talking about them. The thing I love most about my therapist is his relentless refocusing on our relationship. And I'm a person who's been doing this a long time as both a client and a therapist and have many times thought, oh yeah, this is a really good session because I'm, you know, complaining about (laughs) something I'm really upset about. And he is relentlessly bringing our attention back to what is our connection right now? Do you want us to pay attention to you? And whenever he does that, it fills me with shame. But I, I should restate. The, the explicitness of that raises the shame that's already in me, that I do not want to look at, that I do not want to experience, and I don't want to feel, but that pushes me around and guides me in all of my relationships in ways that are dissatisfying um, uh, to me. And so his relentless um, commitment to focusing on what is our experience together, what is it like to be together, and what do I want, and how does this feel, has been transformative for me in how I work with my clients, um, because I want to make what's going on underneath the blanket, I want to take the blanket off. Not in an abrupt way, not in a... um, mean-spirited way, but really in a way of making the, um, uh, making that conscious. And, and I, all the time these days, I just think about that scene in the Wizard of Oz where the Dorothy and the gang are, they're standing in front of the wizard and he's booming. He's like, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. And the man behind the curtain is the wizard. And he's this kind of vulnerable, doddering old guy. He's a good guy, but he has no real power. Right, and he's hiding behind a curtain, and he's pulling levers. That's how my shame is. It hides behind a curtain, and it pulls levers, and booms, and scares me away. And my therapist relentlessly pulls the curtain aside and invites me to step in. I, I think Stephen has a real opportunity here, and the long guy is here. So, this is an interesting wrinkle. So, the situation in my house is it's really hot today. The air conditioner fan is too loud because that disturbs the sound of the thing. And the window open means I invite the crows in to call and poke about because we have some crows that sort of live in our backyard. And so Kirk and I have shut the window and the air conditioner's off. And so the thing is, and now the fucking, excuse me, the guy is here doing the, doing the lawn. So what do you, what do you want to do? <laughs> so even though the window is closed. <laughs> it's all closed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right, right, right. Well, you know. I mean, people can hear a lawn a lawn more. And, and now that is that your dog going? That's uh, our neighbor's dog that comes over every day, who barks whenever anybody comes in the yard. So, unfortunately, Barney will be doing that for a little while. So you babysit your your neighbor's dog? Yeah, when oh. she goes to work. He comes over. He's a great little guy, and we like having him. So, it's okay. fun to spend a day with him. Unfortunately, though, it coincides with our work together here today, and we have these. 
<laughs> background noises that are distracting. I will Steve, say that, that there's yeah. something particularly annoying about weed whackers. Oh. Uh, I have a neighbor that uh, uses a weed whacker a lot, and I the only thing I think is just get an effing lawnmower. Yeah. It, like, I, I, I watch him, and I'm like... A lawnmower would do it so much faster. Weed whackers are for areas that your lawnmower can't get to. Why are you using the weed whacker for everything? I got that neighbor, too. Oh, really? Yeah, she weed whacks her entire yard when she does anything. Like, is it just that they are afraid of a lawnmower, or they don't... Is it funner to use a weed whacker or something? It's ours. Yeah, I... When I've been forced to weed whack things for longer than five minutes, I'm, I my back hurts. Yeah. I, it just drives me crazy. Yeah, and yeah, like I, I just don't understand some people. <laughs> well, you know, um, the the lawn people they don't call them weed whackers; they call them string trimmers. They're trimmers. They're for trimming. Right. <laughs> They're not for doing the whole damn yard. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. They, a lawnmower is an excellent weed whacker. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. They, 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 should, they should name them like uh, what your lawnmower can't get to or something. That, that, is, that, that would be a good name for them. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's take a break. When we get back, uh, let's continue listening to uh, your neighbors. What do you say? Nice. All right, we're back from the break. Let's go into another email from patron Matt from Texas. He writes, how do you handle substance abuse? My use lately is pretty mild, but my current therapist insists that we can't do therapy as long as I'm using at all. My life is pretty empty, and I think getting a job and finding more friends would greatly encourage sobriety. But he won't work on these things with me. Every session, he tries to force me to committing to complete abstinence. This seems shoddy and is starting to seriously piss me off because I've told him so many times what I think I need. End of email. What do you think, Bob? Uh, well, it's good they're talking about it, that he's uh, speaking up and saying that he has this, that his belief is that his use is not an impediment and that th- there can be work on progress made on these other areas in life. Um, I think it's really great that he's speaking up to the therapist about his point of view. And it sounds like they have um, a, a genuine difference. Um, so let's see, what do I think? I think there's probably merit in both sides and that they're polarized. The way all humans get, we take a position when somebody takes an opposite position and we get in a tug of war. And so now the tug of war is about should I or should I not be abstinent? And one of the things that um, I learned in Aikido, Aikido is just fat. Did we talk about Aikido last time? Aikido is so amazing. You've talked about it on the podcast before. Oh, okay. Well, it's a martial art with no offensive moves. And the idea is that when the energy comes your way, you just blend with it. You just work with it. You don't, you don't meet force with opposite force. Uh, so when I pull, I've done this in, in my skills class. I get a rope and... I um, have somebody hold one end and I hold the other end and I start pulling and immediately the other person will pull and match me. Now, they won't pull me over, but they will they'll pull hard enough so that they're not pulled over. And we actually create stasis where we're both pulling. We're both putting effort into pulling. Right. And I suspect that something like that may be happening between this person and their therapist. 
And so one of the things that uh, well, the problem with these kinds of tensions is that something important is being left out. I don't know what the something important is, but the resolution isn't necessarily, well, we go your way or we go my way. There's a person who has an opinion. I think that your use is going to interfere with your goals, right? And I don't want to participate in um, some process that I think is either inefficient or actually harmful to you. Another person has the point of view that this use is not a problem. This is not interfering. And um, I I think we can. So that's, if I, if I heard right, that's kind of a summary of their tension. And when you're in one of these things, it's very difficult to step back far enough to see, oh yeah, there's your point of view and my point of view and something being left out. Usually we polarize and we lock down in our position and the harder we pull, the harder the other person pulls. And it happens all the time and it doesn't mean I'm in a bad therapy. Therapists are humans. You're in a human relationship and in human relationships, these kinds of polarizations or as they say in DBT land, dialectics happen. So this is an opportunity to work with that. I don't know that that's... I don't, I don't actually believe in getting real solution-focused until the problem is actually identified. So I wouldn't say we've got to rush to, okay, I'm going to be absent, or okay, I'm going to fire you and get another therapist. I'd say that um, an exploration of the meaning of the thing is probably really important. Like, what's it like that this guy... Guy? Anyways, I don't know. Yeah, Matt. Yeah, Matt. Okay, what's it like, Matt, for you... Um, Oh shit! I lost my train of thought. <laughs> What's it feel like when when your therapist um, is pulling? What's it like for you? Does it undermine your sense of self respect to go along? Does it create shame? Um, obviously, it pisses you off. You're saying that um, it would piss anybody off. I think I I would be pissed off if I was in one of these impasses. Uh, so I'm talking a lot here, but I guess the message I want to give is talk about it. We are at an impasse. You're pulling hard and I'm pulling hard and we're stuck. And let's work with that. Yeah, I love that. But I wonder, and of course, there's no way to know if the therapist would be on board with that kind of conversation. Because Possibly I, not. I, I think that a lot of therapists would say to that question, well, okay, yeah, we do have an impasse because mm-hmm. you need to stop using in order for mm-hmm. therapy to work. Uh, I'm the professional and you're the client and... That's just the way it's going to be. Uh, you know, we only have uh, one point of view here. You know, we have Matt's point of view about his use, and we don't have the therapist's point of view or assessment of the use, uh, the uh, drug use or whatever. And so um, it would be remiss to say anything with, with definiteness. I mean, who knows? So we, yeah, we have no idea what this other therapist is thinking. I mean, no. Matt's use could just be like, what? I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just using meth. Five times a day. What's the big deal? Yeah, right. uh, and we've certainly seen this kind of uh, uh, denial from right. people who uh, suffer from substance abuse disorders. Uh, doesn't sound like that. It, 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 he didn't even nope. Matt didn't even say what he was using. But but uh, but yeah. But so uh, before we go on, I I just want to chime in. I didn't want to interrupt you, oh. but you talked about. Um, the the rope thing and you you brought that to the live show. Oh God, I would I would do that differently next time. <laughs> I was horrified with that interaction. Afterwards, I I left just feeling upset. <laughs> so, patron Alexis might be actually listening right now. She so we did a live show 
was it just last year? I don't know. Uh, maybe a couple years, yeah. And it was a, um, yeah, it would have been the 10-year anniversary, so it would have been yeah. two years ago, yeah. And I asked you, Bob, I said, you know, you should do something. People want to see you at the live show. And you said, well, I have this thing that I do in my groups with, with a rope, and, and, and it's, it's kind of cool, and I'll get a volunteer from the audience, and it'll be pretty neat. And, and what happened? Oh, um, well, what I did is instead of pulling on a rope, which is what I would have done if I could do it over again, I, I asked Alexa to hold up her hands, you know, like hold them up in front of her, and um, with her permission, I touched her. And so we're hand to hand, right? Both hands pushing. And I started pushing on her. And instead of pushing back, Alexa kept backing up until I pushed her against the wall. <laughs> this was my horror. It's like, oh, my God. And, you know, I'm a pretty big guy. And she's, you know, a little bitty thing. And I'm just like, oh, my God. Am I traumatizing this poor lady? You know, she's being so kind and gentle to help with the thing. And it's also blowing the message I meant to give. And <laughs> oh, so, so you brought, that's right. You brought the rope, but you didn't use it. I didn't you, use it. You went, yeah, you, I you would ad, use it next time. You ad libbed, you, you used it. So, so the idea was, is you were hoping that she would eventually just stop you. Yeah. And resist. Right. And it, it would, it would demonstrate some Aikido therapeutic notion, yeah. but she, she didn't because she, did she was, she thought, that you were trying to push her back. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I was. I was. I was just <laughs> anticipating something different. You know, I've done that thing dozens and dozens of times, and only twice has um, somebody had that kind of response where I push and they um, allow me to push them around. <laughs> so, and, and poor Alexa, she was so gracious. Alexis. We traded, Alexis. Alexis, excuse me. We traded emails afterwards, and I told her I was so horrified with it, and she's like, "Nope, it's okay." So far as I know, it's it's okay with Alexis. And, no, no, no. She, yeah, no. She, yeah. she's a nice person. Yeah. Um, the other thing I thought of with your Aikido thing is maybe because I'm Japanese, it's in my bones. You know, file Chris file, uh, my friend. We were. Uh, this would have been you know during college years. And and there goes the lawnmower. Lawnmower. God bless him to actually get the lawnmower going. Um, and we were at a party, and we were drinking, you know, beer out of a keg. Mm-hmm. And so we all had keg cups. And at some point, one of us started to splash the other person with beer. And, and it was a summer, you know, an evening. And we would do this, me and File, every once in a while. We'd just get into this mood at one thirty in the morning. And so he kept getting me really good, like with full glasses of beer and uh, full, ke- you know, uh, solo cups with beer. And I right. just, I would, and I thought, okay, I'm going to really get him. And then I, I would miss him. And then we started getting into a physical thing on the front lawn. And he, you know... He's tall, but he's pretty thin. Yeah. And so we were really going at it, and he came at me. And I, in my head, it instinctively just said, I'm going to do an Aikido move. Yeah. And I'm going to go with him. And so right. so he gra- he was coming, he was lunging at me real hard. And we're, again, we're on the front lawn of this house. And he he lunges at me, and so I grabbed onto his shirt, uh-huh. and he grabbed onto my shirt, uh-huh. and I just fell backwards as fast and hard as I could. Wow! And he flew, no joke, through the air onto the road. Oh God! 
face first. Oh god! And everyone saw it, and mm-hmm. I because it felt so weird because mm-hmm. I was thinking I was just gonna go with I don't know I felt I thought maybe he would just fall on top of me or something, yeah. right? But I essentially did some sort of weird judo yeah. throw, and yeah. he just went. He people. <laughs> He was okay, but I mean, he had a massive scab from his forehead all the way down his nose because his oh, face just scraped just on scra- on the on the asphalt. Yeah, and every and everyone thought I was just like a complete jerk, but honestly, I just thought there was no way that I meant to do that and thought that was no. going to happen. And no. he lunged at me. <laughs> yeah, it's just his energy. And, uh, but the, yeah, I just remember thinking in the moment, like slow motion, I'm falling backwards. Right. And it just felt like I was throwing a paper airplane. It didn't mm-hmm. feel like I, I was throwing like yeah. 170 pounds of, of, of man. You know, I, yeah. it just felt like I was just pushing a, a ball down a hill. It just, right. as an Aikido person, you probably know how that feels. Well, I was terrible at Aikido, but, um, but I do. I've seen it. If you ever get bored, um, there's a. Uh, you can watch Aikido videos. There's one in particular, a fella called Endo. He is amazing because he looks like he's not doing anything. But the reason it looks that way is because a he he expends very little little energy as he redirects the energy of the people charging him. And b he's doing it with people who know how to fall down. And because they know how to fall down well, it looks like they're falling down on purpose. But if they don't fall in the way that they are, they actually will get injured. He'll break their arm. Not wanting to break their arm, but they know how to move well enough to know that if I, you know, he'll dislocate my shoulder unless I go with the energy. So so um, the problem in that situation, I think, isn't that you threw him. It's that he didn't know how to fall. Right. <laughs> well, even if he did, he was going to the ass fuse. Like, yeah. I threw him between two parked cars. You know, imagine I, wow. I'm, I'm essentially near the sidewalk and then there's the parking strip and then there's right. the parked cars and then there's the right. street. And so I threw him probably 15 feet or something. Jeez, it was, Louise. yeah, people said that he looked like Superman. Like, Superman just, <laughs> wow. Like he was flying through the air, his arms <laughs> forward like Superman. Oh <laughs> You just hit it just right. You just like you hit the sweet spot, man. You yeah, just, but man, did re- I feel bad? I oh, mean, immediately, yeah. you know, we. It's like I see the blood all over his face, and we run oh. into the bathroom, and I'm, I'm like, oh my god, I'm so sorry. Yeah. And um, how was he? Uh, he was fine. You know, yeah. he had a massive, funny yeah. scar down the middle of his face for a few weeks, but yeah. uh, which you know we made endless fun of after oh, a while, indeed. but right. But yeah, so so getting to patron Matt's question here right. about substance abuse and being in therapy, there is a huge debate in our field, actually, mm-hmm. um, and specifically within the field of substance abuse treatment. Uh, there are people who say that you can't... So there's a lot of different camps, and I'll just describe all the different camps that I've heard. So there are people who work in substance abuse treatment that will say that therapists are actually bad actors by allowing non-sober clients to be in therapy without holding the line and saying you got to go to drug treatment with a you know chemical dependency professional get sober and then you can come into therapy with me these 
the substance not not every substance abuse treatment professional is like this, but I've definitely heard this many many times. Believe me, because um, I actually for a while worked at a chemical dependency treatment yeah. center for a long time, yeah. and they would say that, and they would also say that therapists were kind of na- they were naive about substance abuse. They would go along with clients' pathologies. They would enable uh, uh, th- cl- uh, you know, using clients to uh, continue to use you know, this notion of like, oh, sure, if, if you're using and you're sick, they would use these terms. You know, you're using, you're, you're sick mm-hmm. with the substance abuse addiction. And you go into a therapist and the therapist just lets you talk about your problems without confronting you on the fact that you have a substance abuse problem, this is akin to an enabling spouse. And you as a therapist are doing something completely unethical. So I, so that's definitely something that I've heard and is, uh, I would say, a pretty dominant dogma within substance abuse treatment in, in my anecdotal experience. Then you'll see some people in substance abuse treatment that will be in the what they call the harm reduction camp. And they're more flexible. They will say, well, yeah, if, say, you used cocaine every day and it was ruining your life, and then you cut back to using it once every two weeks while you were having fun with your friends at a, at a party, then, you know, is it a problem? Well, you know, it's probably not the best thing you could do with your life, but overall it sounds like, sounds like you're doing okay. Now, the harm reduction people are not naive either because they work in substance abuse treatment, and they're, they also know that... There are there is such a thing as a progressive addiction in that if you have a problem, it tends to get worse over time. And although you're just using cocaine once a month right now, if you have a problem with cocaine, as you have demonstrated in the past, in all likelihood, this is going to progress into a bigger problem just like it has before. And the fact that you have uh, notions of denial and stubbornness around your use just proves that you're just not ready to be sober yet. And, and so it's not like harm reduction people are saying things like, well, if you use only once a month, that's fine. But but harm reduction people will allow for nuance and for um, case-by-case basis sort of thing. Whereas the, the hardliner substance abuse people will say, if you have a problem with substances, you have to be sober. You have to be abstinent. There's just no other way around it. And for a lot of people, that is true. For a lot of people, that is the only way that they're going to get any better is to be completely sober because, and I've certainly treated a lot of clients like this before too, is they have such a problem either genetically or behaviorally or something with substances that they will, if if there's any amount of substance in their life, it will just fester and grow. If there's a If there's a tiny little... A light in the door being ajar. Eventually, the door the door is going to be wide open, and they're going to. It's just it's just going to be a problem. And, so, and sobriety and abstinence is is the only answer. Okay, so that's in the chemical dependency world, and in the therapy world, you'll see also. Very, I've seen various different perspectives. I've seen therapists who, and this is more something that I would have seen a long time ago, but I still see a fair amount of this. Actually, I would. I would estimate anecdotally that a good half of therapists believe the following, which is that if a client has a problem with substance use, they cannot be in therapy. They've got to get clean. 
and because there's nothing that you can accomplish at all in therapy if that client is is using. But then you have to ask yourself in in that group, as if I was to to debate with them, well, what do you what do you define as substance abuse problems? Because what if someone drinks every Friday night with their with their wife? They if they they have a a uh, couple glasses of wine every fr- or or every other night is that a substance abuse problem? What if they drink caffeine uh, every day? Is that a substance? Abuse? What if they smoke cigarettes every day? What if they smoke marijuana um, in the evening with their spouse while they watch Ren and Stimpy? You know, like what uh, what what is the what's the definition? Because. I don't know what that exactly because, you know, if someone there's this idea of just like, well, if you're using meth or cocaine or heroin, those are bad drugs. But, you know, alcohol and caffeine and nicotine and maybe marijuana these days, these are these are good drugs. These are okay. And this notion is just like this really Nixonian ridiculousness. And so we uh, so that's one thing I would say. But anyway, so there's a lot of dogma around that and therapy of just like and I remember uh, a huge amount of argue, arguments going on around me around this when I was early in my career you have other therapists and this is me which is case by case basis where if someone comes to me and says that uh, they want my help with say you know say patron Matt you're saying that you want to see you see da, 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 uh, I, my life is pretty empty and I think getting a job and finding more friends would greatly encourage sobriety. And so if you said that to me, Patreon Matt, you're just like, my life is, my life is empty, and I, I, f- I feel like I want to get a job. I want to find more friends. And yeah, I've been, you know, I've been, I smoke pot every night, or I, I use meth on the weekends, or I, I drink four beers at, at night with, you know, before I fall asleep. Then I would say, well, so there's a possibility that your substance abuse is affecting things and might become a barrier, but I'm not going to kick you out of therapy. You know, we, we can just talk about that as, as time goes on, but I'll just throw stuff out to you, Matt, as a therapist. It's up to you to decide whether or not it's getting in, in your way. Uh, because I, how would I know, really, if the substance use is getting in the way? The client is the only one that's really going to be able to know that, especially in the sort of the way that I laid it out in that way. Now, if I had a client come in that, and I have had this before in my early career, who was in the midst of a, a, a very intense meth addiction or a cocaine addiction and was high all the time and hallucinating and psychotic at times and... Uh, obsessed with getting their next fix, then yeah, we're not going to accomplish anything in therapy. But the notion that smoking a bowl at night and uh, watching cartoons or having a couple glasses of wine at night somehow makes you completely like a zombie person that can't do therapy is silly. The other thing is, is that a lot of research shows that when people are trying to... uh, the reason why they use substances in the first place is because of re- of relational traumas, emotional reasons. And so therapy is the perfect place to help with that. And if we can help them with that, like with Matt, he's saying, I'm, I feel pretty empty. If Matt can work on his issues of not being empty, 
then maybe he won't need to use as much anymore. Or maybe his use is recreational and he is allowed to make his own choices about whether or not it is ultimately good or bad for him. Now, I'm not saying that the therapist, uh, uh, Matt's therapist, is doing a wrong thing. I'm just saying that there are different approaches. I'm just saying I have an approach, and when I teach my supervisees, I teach them all the approaches, and I, I allow them to make a decision as to what kind of stance they want, want to have. And there's a lot of things like that in therapy. Like a similar issue is domestic violence in a, in a relationship, in a couple. So a couple comes to us. And we start to detect there's domestic violence. Well, some therapists will say, I can't treat you as a couple. That's just not going to happen. As long as there's violence or control or abuse happening, then we're not going to do therapy. But for me, uh, I, I understand that completely. But I as, and other people in my camp will take a more nuanced point of view of if it's severe abuse, then perhaps. But if it's below a certain threshold and the abuser is at least agreeing to talk with me about their behavior and we're seeing some change, then what a better place. There, you know, there's not, I mean, uh, there's not, uh, uh, what a great place to talk about the abuse uh, in that I am there to, uh, to hear from the victim's mouth themselves what's happening and sp and speak then directly to the person doing the abusing and often the abuser is being triggered by something that the uh, victim is doing not that it justifies the abuse but it but it it provides a causal link that we can begin to work on and healing uh, attachment wounds is usually a big part of the thing and couples therapy can can be a great venue for that so so um so, in summary, <laughs> yeah. it's okay for a therapist to say, I don't want to work with you if you're using. That is, that's not, it's not unethical. It's not a bad way to treat people. It, it, if, if that's what a therapist wants to do, then, you know, there's, there's totally justification for that. There's a lot of other people that will support that. And... That's just that's an approach in the same way that if I go to a cognitive therapist and I ask them to do psychodynamic therapy and they're going to say, I'm not going to do psychodynamic therapy, I'm going to do cognitive therapy. I can't be upset because that's their approach and they're being explicit about their approach to that problem. And and that's what's you know, that that's just their approach. Uh, having said that, you know, again, in summary, for me, I, I take a more nuanced approach now. My approach has pros and cons. The pro is is that I'm going to be more flexible and perhaps catch situations that therapy would be okay in that situation. The con is I might occasionally enable people to use, quote-unquote, enable, by not being more uh, upfront and more confrontational about their, their use. Um, and I accept those pros and those cons. And... If I get into a sticky situation, which I haven't in a long time, then I consult and make sure that I'm not going too far in one direction. Uh, any thoughts on the 25 minutes of talk I just did, Bob? That was comprehensive. <laughs> no, I, I like it. Um, I, I have a similar attitude towards, um, towards uh, substance use. And... Um, I would. I'm thinking of our old addictions teacher Lisa Erickson, who I just loved. She was great, 
um, who would say to us, not all use is abuse and not all abuse is addiction. Um, I think she had a, perhaps a similar kind of flexible attitude about treating folks who have substance use. I wonder though, if um, part of the agreed upon treatment plan is for Matt to be abstinent, you know, or if, or if Matt and therapists can talk about how use impacts his goals. Because one of the things that seems like I'm getting the flavor of in this email is the the feeling of judgment from the therapist. I'm not saying the therapist is judging, but it sounds like Matt feels judged. Um, that's never great. So if the therapist really believes, though, you know, um, uh, use will interfere with goals, then, you know, you get you, you guys get to talk about that and you get to decide what you want to do with that because you may have you may have a mismatch. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think that's something that could be frustrating for clients to finally find a therapist that they like and then to run into this issue. Right. Yeah. That is frustrating. Yeah. I would hate for somebody to leave therapy thinking, though, that they either failed or were a failure in the eyes of the therapist. Right. Which brings me to maybe the last point, and hopefully this doesn't go on for another 25 minutes, is that for some clients, and I remember adopting this uh, perspective a long time ago, they might need some time in therapy with a client or with a therapist to kind of gear up for abstinence uh, treatment. They're they're frazzled. They're abused. Their life is going down the tubes. They're afraid. I mean, the thing that is usually present in addiction and compulsive anything is shame and and suffering and so the person that is uh you know suffering from the addiction as they contemplate um sobriety it can be extremely scary to them right just like um perhaps their whole life their whole life since they've been 13 years old have been um, their suffering has been managed by substance use and their their social life is centers around substance abuse or something and so maybe 10 weeks or 20 weeks of therapy of an, an exploratory relationship where the th- client can just think about things without being judged and without someone turning in them into the police or something and they can just explore that and then eventually maybe come to the conclusion of just like, you know what, I think I really do need to be sober. I need to start looking at this more closely. Mm-hmm. And that can be a great thing, too. And if, for therapists out there listening, it's up to you to decide what you want to do as a policy and or by case-by-case basis. But, uh, you know, I encourage everyone to to to, I don't know, think carefully about it because – because people who are suffering, they, they, I find that this notion of like, well, you got to get sober before you can be in therapy. I find that that centers, to me, it it has a, and not always, of course, but it, it has a ring of you're a bad person and you're doing a bad thing. And you need to stop doing that bad thing before you can get the good thing. Yeah. You can't you can't have your cake before you eat your your peas. What's you can't have your pudding 
What, what's the? If you don't eat your meat, you can't have any pudding. Right. It's How that, can you have any pudding if you, if you don't, don't eat have your meat? meat. It, it's it's that it has that kind of moralizing in it. Like mm. y- you you are making bad choices, and until you start making good choices, mm-hmm. you can't start. You can't eat your pudding. So yeah. start making good choices, and then we'll talk. And I, I just I don't know if if that's the best attitude. Yeah. Again, if you have that policy, there is there is some absolute soundness to it, but it has pros and cons, and we just have to think about that. All right, Linux says, I've been seeing a new therapist for a year now, and for some time now he's been forgetting to time limit our sessions. They have been twenty to thirty minutes longer than usual. My old therapist was the same way with me, drawing out our sessions for like 20 to 30 minutes past the designated time. Am I so intriguing that they keep doing this? What's up with this? <laughs> Why do therapists prolong time limits? End of email. Bob, what do you think? Well, fellow traveler, because um, I have that vulnerability myself, particularly if I don't have anybody scheduled after um, uh, what do I think? I think that I do that because I feel guilty or because I feel... As um, a therapist? Yeah. Um, or I feel inspired or I feel like this is a this is a moment that I want to work with. Um, um, I think sometimes that means that I'm not managing things properly. I'm not managing myself and my own counter-transference properly. Um, so I've worked to get better at that and generally do not extend sessions. And if I do, I, I ask the client, you got an extra five minutes here. Um, do you want to, you know, so we can kind of finish this part off. Um, uh, I generally ask clients if they want to do that because, you know, just cause they're there doesn't mean that they want sessions to go on and on. I think I used to have that attitude where I would just presume that if I was willing, then they, then they Oh, well, lucky can't lucky client. Cause they get someone who's willing to go an extra whatever. And, um, uh, so, um, that, that I think my wife pointed out that that was a bit of a presumption on my part and that, um, uh, my clients might not feel similarly. They might actually want me to hold, hold, um, the time limit. So my point is, is that these days when I go over, I'm explicit about it. So the other day I was having a session with somebody and she was in the middle of, oh, the most God awful pain. And I said, it feels bad to end here. Do you mind if we, shall we just keep talking here? Cause you know, I don't want to, uh, you know, I just thinking of the way you would talk to a friend. It's like they're in the middle of their pain. You don't just say, okay, well, you know what? I got a thing. I'll see you. You know, it's just bad manners. Yeah. What if the same scenario happens another time and you have a client right after? Well, um, yeah, I can't, I, I have a vulnerability to going long and then starting sessions a couple minutes late, um, which I don't love. Um, and when I do that, I will often ask the client, can we have our full time and can we go till, you know, five minutes after or 10 minutes after or whatever the, whatever the overage was. Um, and some people say, yeah, they can do that. And other people say, no, they can't, or they don't want to because, you know, and then I feel bad because it's like, you're paying for this and I feel like I'm shortchanging you and that's not okay. It gives us something to talk about. Um, uh, that could be really useful. Not that I'm, not that I do that because I want to create fodder for therapy, but you know, 
um, I do have my own personal vulnerabilities and they will impact my clients and um, working with those is therapeutic because it, it makes it gives an opportunity for us to talk about our relationship and our experience of relationship and what's happening and um, unfortunately I am a person who has this particular vulnerability not like I used to uh, by the way I had a therapist who would do the same thing she'd go 20 to 30 minutes over and when that happened I noticed that I started doing that more easily or frequently I think simply because it was modeled to me but um, I don't have that now and I try to hold to it because I do believe that um, holding to the time is providing a sense of containership for clients and so that's I believe a good thing a helpful thing so um, I would encourage this person to talk with their therapist about it um, because it's at the very least a distraction from whatever the good work is or the, the goals that they have that they want to um, get to together. And also because just talking about it is, have you noticed this, Kirk? Have you noticed that despite the fact that you do what you do, that if you're in therapy, it is actually quite challenging to talk to your therapist about therapy? Absolutely. Yeah. It's fucking hard. Yeah. Well, it's vulnerable. And it's, it's vulnerable. Yeah. And right. you're worried that your therapist is going to be hurt or right. scared or or uncomfortable. Yeah. Or pissed off or, you know, rejecting or whatever. Yeah. Um, at least those are the things that, that I get worried about. Um, that in itself is therapeutic, though, being able to talk about this. This is kind of piggybacking on what we were saying earlier about the other the other person that wrote in. is Being able to be reflective about the relationship between... Uh, me and my therapist is actually part of why I'm there. Yeah. So um, I suspect, though, that we get judgmental when we get uncomfortable. And the way I think about this lately is, um, you know, when you're in an airplane, they say when the oxygen masks drop, put your own on first. Yeah. I think one of the things that I've learned in life um, that is not so helpful, which and by not so helpful, I mean actually not helpful at all, is that I'm responsible for other people's oxygen mask. And so when the oxygen masks drop, it's somehow it's my job to pay attention to somebody else's need for oxygen and to find their mask and put it on their face while I get hypoxic. And the idea that I might actually just seek my own oxygen mask and let the other person do their thing or not um, feels scary, feels selfish. And so in that instance, one of the things that I have done which I wonder if maybe is happening to this person writing in, is I've gotten judgmental of the other because they haven't taken care of me. That isn't, I believe, anybody else's job. If In, in this case, if, if I'm in there and I want my session to end at 10 a.m. and not go till 10.20 or 10.30, it's okay for me to speak up and say so. I want to go now. I want our sessions to end on time. It's a hard thing to do. It is vulnerable, just like you say, but it's absolutely reasonable. And this is me grabbing my own oxygen mask and putting it on. And that is a very good thing to do in relationships. So I hope they'll just bring it up. Yeah, but I could see a scenario where she wants them to go long sometimes mm -hmm. and really likes that she gets extra time for free. Talk and, about that. And likes flexibility about the fact that it's, um, you know, when needed, it goes longer. Uh -huh. but, but, you know, the question that she's asking is, what is it about me? You know, because it, it is, a, I think, a viable question because 
it, she says, uh, my old therapist was same with me. So she said two therapists that have gone long with her. Oh. And now, you know, who knows? Maybe both of those therapists go long with many clients. Could be. But it is possible. I could see a scenario, of course, we have no way of knowing, that there is something about her that uh, provokes something in in the therapist to go long. And because, oh. th- well, Bob, answer me this. I don't know if you want to answer this. Sure. but I'll try. Is is it possible that if if you think about the clients that you've gone long with in mm-hmm. your career over the mm-hmm. past 10 years mm-hmm. and the clients that you never went long with, mm-hmm. I'm guessing there's a difference between mm-hmm. their personality, mm-hmm. your relationship, mm-hmm. the issues, the, the, you know, the, the vibe they give off, the counter-transference you have. Mm-hmm. What, what would that be? Guilt. You feel guilt. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and I have had um, clients where I've noticed this thing where there's a vulnerability or a tendency for me to not watch the clock the way I normally would. So yeah, it's a managing of my own counter-transference. And it's actually an um, interesting thing to kind of puzzle on and um, reflect on because it probably does mean that there's something happening in our relationship or something happening with my client that's leading us to um, lengthening sessions. Yeah. I and saw I somebody see a long time ago who actually was annoyed with me this is years ago, was annoyed with me. Um, uh, but nonetheless, the sessions tended to run long. So it's, it's like they were spending time with somebody who they found annoying, but they were spending more time um, at the same time as feeling you know, irritated and um, having um, a feeling that I wasn't helpful. And yet um, our sessions were running long, which you know, to me, they, they, on the surface of it, seems a bit contradictory. Because you then, felt guilty for not being helpful enough. I I did. I did feel guilty for that. Yeah. And so the point of that isn't to run sessions long. The point is to manage my own counter-transference and start inquiring what might be happening here for my person? What might be going on? Yeah. And I apologize uh, to this person if I misinterpreted the way I responded to the email. Maybe I got a different spin on it than what they're asking. Because they're asking this question, is there something about me? Well, maybe. I- yeah, I consider these emails to be a jumping off point to talk about things that are related and unrelated. Mm-hmm. And plus, we don't really know because it's a short email mm-hmm. and we, we the person isn't in the room saying like, well, here's the nuance. So I think it's just a, a stimulus question, if you will. But gotcha. yeah. but um, but yeah, it's interesting that and I so I'll tell you, I, I haven't gone long in a session in years Mm-hmm. Um, I, in fact, I can't remember the last time it, pro- the, in fact, in the, I don't know if it's ever really happened. I mean, mm-hmm. there was a time when I did in-home family therapy and those sessions were pretty loosely defined to begin with. So yeah. maybe then, but in office stuff, maybe early career, like 20 years ago, I, I, I did, but pretty early in my career, I, I said to myself, that if I let myself do this, if I if I allow getting back to our kind of addiction uh, uh, talk, mm-hmm. if I allow myself to occasionally go long with a client when I can, then I'm never going to know when it's 
okay to do that and when it's not. And I'm always going to feel bad if I don't. <laughs> Brilliant. Because every day there's a, there's a last client. Every day right. you have a client that you could go long with. Right. And so I'm going to feel like, well, why did I go long there and not there? Yeah. And I'm, and I'm always going to be wondering, well, should I do it this time? And I'm, and I'm going to have to think about it in the moment rather than just saying, look, dude, you're going to – and I think this is the conversation I have. I seem to remember thinking this early in my career. I said, I'm going to be a therapist for a long time. Mm. I'm going to have thousands of sessions. I don't want to think about this question. Mm. And – and I hear from ethics experts that I'm not supposed to go long. So mm-hmm. let's just draw the line. Mm-hmm. And it's hard, you know, because some clients, they hit their their peak one minute before the session ends. And it's rough to just be like, sorry, time's up. Mm-hmm. And there are jokes about this in movies where it's clear that therapists don't really care and they're just in it for the money because they're like, okay, time's up. You know, there's, it's a trope that right. a client really gets into their material and then the therapist just looks at their watch, time's up, and yeah. and, and it's this notion that, that we don't really care. And so right. I get that. Now, the other thing that I'll point out is that it is a skill to learn how to pace a session yeah. and, and how to keep an eye on the clock and say, right. okay, we've got seven minutes left. Mm-hmm. We should, I should, as a therapist, direct people p- towards things that will lend itself to wrapping up the session on time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, especially for me, because I actually don't allow my clients to look at a at a at a clock. I, oh, right. I, I, I don't not allow them, but I I don't put the clock in a convenient place for them to look at it because I want right. them to just kind of luxuriate in the space and not mm. have to mm-hmm. like worry about the time. I find that clients who look at the time are more kind of list makers, which is fine to do. I'm a list maker, but I'm the sort of therapist and the sort of therapy I typically provide is more free associative. And, mm-hmm. and so I, now sometimes clients will just turn around and look at my, look at the sure. clock that's behind their head or right. they'll just look at their phone or something. But, right. but I find that as a client myself, when I, if I saw a clock very closely within my peripheral of my therapist, it just kind of screwed things up for me in terms of my flow. But anyway, Mm -hmm. um, so that's interesting that, you know, that you bring up guilt. So are you saying that the transference, countertransference is working out to induce guilt in you? I am. Yeah. And so, uh, so Linux, I wonder, of course, there's no way for us to know, and this would be a great question to ask your therapist, as, Mm -hmm. as Bob always says. Is is it that I'm intriguing? Is it that I induce guilt through transference, countertransference? Is it you know what what's going on there? And that'd be a you know really great question to mm-hmm. ask if you want to you, mm-hmm. Linux. You don't have to. You could just sort of luxuriate in uh, you know discounted therapy uh, <laughs> and free free time. There's 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 nothing strange about. It. So I have a few things to say about this. One is is that uh, there's a there are different types of therapists when it comes to this. Some therapists have loose boundaries, what I'll call loose boundaries, and some therapists have more uh, buttoned-up boundaries. I'm I'm more buttoned-up. I'd say Bob is more kind of in the middle, um, which mm-hmm. and I think Bob is kind of typical. Most people I talk to will say, yeah, with some clients I'll go over. And for me, I 
like I said, I just decided early on that it was just one of those mm-hmm. questions I just didn't want to bowl over. And I think also I thought to myself, because I remember hearing the scenario, and I guess as a professor and as a supervisor, I just felt like I should practice what I preach. And and it's very common for novice therapists to go over, one, because they can't manage their guilt, their guilt countertransference as well as they can when they're earlier on or later on in their career. But they also inherently feel like they're imposters, you know, because they're just starting out in their career and they feel like they have to do extra things to get the validation that they're doing a good job. And so mm-hmm. they are much more likely to um, give in on things. that. And so I'll hear a lot of novice therapists will go over. Mm-hmm. And I would frequently tell them, uh, one, you're... Uh, do you want to go over, I would always mm-hmm. ask. And mm-hmm. almost every therapist would say, no, I don't want to go over. Okay, mm-hmm. so why are you doing it? Mm-hmm. What, what are, what's the countertransference? Um, but really, you know, the, the kicker is if you are – you're changing the treatment plan. You know, you, you're, you, the treatment plan specifically should say 50-minute sessions or whatever once a week or whatever the, you know, the period – you know, the regularity is – you're changing the treatment plan. You're essentially saying it, it's akin to, it's not the same, but it's akin, to, it's akin to you give your patient as a physician a medication, and then you're just giving them more medication. So you can change the treatment plan. You can do that. But you have to be explicit about it. And you, Bob, do a little bit of that on the fly. You're just like, now, you're like, so I can go over by five or ten minutes would you like to do that? So you're, you're essentially engaging in a conversation about the treatment. And so if, uh, so if you're going to change that, that's – but the bigger issue here that I'm trying to get to is that if you go over with any of your clients, it, it creates a inherent problem in the future, which is what about those times that you can't go over with that particular client? And or what about the times when other clients find out you're going over with another client and you never go over with the other client, even though it calls for it and even though the client might have even asked you, can, so can we go over today? Is this your, you know, I'll have clients ask me this question. Am I your last, am I your last client? Because I, I feel like I'm not done yet. And so there's this notion out there that people mm-hmm. have of just like, well, therapists have this option. And if you give this as an option, what about the times that you don't do it? Yeah. What are you going to say? I just don't. Yeah, you are my last client. And I know you're in the middle of some, you know, very heavy emotional stuff in the last couple of minutes. But I just don't want to do it. Like, what are you going to say? It's unethical for me to do it. I am tired and I don't want to work anymore. Like, what are you going to say? There's no good answer. There's nothing you can say in that moment that is going to be very soothing. Now, for many clients, this isn't going to be a problem. But we all know we have clients with abandonment issues that will want more time with us. Mm -hmm. And if you play fast and loose with that boundary, what happens when you pull back on the boundary? Now, if you want to change the treatment plan, which I've done, to hour and a half every time you meet and you got to, and you always make sure it's your last appointment mm-hmm. because you believe treatment wise this is a good idea then just set that as the treatment plan just say this is now the treatment plan and if any other client asks like well how come I'm not getting it it's like well your treatment plan is actually an hour because that's what it calls for this other client 
you know, is an hour and a half because that that's the treatment plan we set forward. So there's nothing wrong with going over, but you have to make it a part of the treatment plan because you run into these risks of people being hurt. Um, and almost always with the novice therapists that I work with, they hit a point where they're like, okay, Kirk, I'm, I'm done going over because mm-hmm. I don't want to go over anymore. It always feels bad to me. I feel like I'm not doing a good job. I feel like I'm just giving I'm just giving away free service. I'd rather be going to the bathroom and taking a break or, you know, getting paperwork done. And I, I don't want to do this anymore. And mm-hmm. I and I and in and that's where it's like an addiction. It's like you started something and it's mm-hmm. hard to pull back. Mm-hmm. Once once you do it, it's hard to say, I don't want to do this anymore. It's so much easier to just say, I'm never gonna do this. Under any circumstances, unless the client is saying, I'm going to kill myself and there's some kind of safety issue, I'm even if they're in the middle of something intense, um, and like I said, there are ways to sort of wrap up a session, literally yeah. just saying things like, and I, I'm sure you've said stuff like this, Bob, oh my God, I didn't look at the clock, it's the end of our session, and you're in the middle of something extremely intense, and I feel so bad ending a session where we have to end it. It's my fault that I didn't notice the clock five minutes ago and kind of steer the conversation towards wrapping up the session. I feel so awful, but we have to term, we have to end the session right now. There's nothing wrong with saying that. And there's nothing wrong with a client hating you and talking about it in your next session, <laughs> as you always say, Bob. And in my notes here, I said... You know that it's often about countertransference, but you already said this, Bob, and, and about about guilt. But just to expand on that, in my experience, is guilt, wanting to be helpful, um, not wanting to reject a client, wanting a friend in a client. And I've seen that before too. Like you don't have enough friends, or you you seem you have some sort of countertransference about wanting to be social with that person, and so. In your soul, in your heart, you kind of feel like the session is more of a hangout than an actual professional service. Or a lover. And I've heard this before, too. And I'm not saying, Bob, you're doing this. But I've heard uh, uh, progressions where the end of the progression is they had sex. The client, the therapist had sex. And at the beginning of the progression is clients going over. It's the slippery slope, you know. Mm-hmm. Of course, that's a you know rare instance, but it is something I've seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, therapist wanting approval, lack of personal life, lack of ethics training, bad boundaries in general. Like when I hear this going over, it's often accompanied by being late at the beginning of a session, mm-hmm. not showing up for a session, talking about your other clients with your clients. Um, talking about your own per- self-disclosing too much, you know, in an unhelpful way, and so um, so sometimes it's like tip of the iceberg. Mm-hmm. Have I sufficiently shamed you, Bob? You're doing okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not my intention to shame you mm-hmm. at all, um, and and it, I thought it was good that it's like okay, you know, let's normalize this behavior because you know it, it it's not like it's that uncommon for a therapist to go over, but. But I don't know, like, what do you think in terms of the idea that what if, what what happens in that moment when you don't want to go over? Yeah, no, no. Listen, I'm listening to everything you're saying. And despite the shame that's coming up and the anxiety that's coming up, I still like hearing what you're saying. And I like the idea that 
um, not only am I contributing to this podcast, but I'm also getting to learn, you know? <laughs> so, so for me, it's, it's a revisiting of something that's been going on in some form or other, more or less, less these days for the entirety of my, uh, work life. So, um, thinking about this is good for me and it doesn't have to be pain-free in order to be okay. Yeah. Mm. Now, the final thing I'll say is we all know, and particularly you and me, Bob, that the therapeutic healing action is the relationship. Yeah. Is feeling as though, as a client, your, your therapist genuinely likes you, cares yeah. about you, yeah. that you're not just another case, that you're not a number, that you're a human being. And so going over could facilitate that a little bit. Like another sort of example along these lines was I had a, a client, a family, where there was a sudden death in the family and um, a child. Mm. And this was in the midst of me treating the family. And they called me for an emergency session. Well, that's kind of, you know, I generally don't uh, allow for emergency sessions for a variety of reasons, but I, you know, allowed that boundary crossing in that instance because it was important. The session went way over. It went for three hours. It was way over one hour. And why did I do that? Well, because I thought the situation called for it. So there are situations, lesser situations, where, say, a client is, you know, really struggling with something and your heart is really involved in the, in the room as a therapist, you're, you're really caring for the client and feel connected and feel like their healing is doing a lot in this moment. And you really want to emphasize how much you care and you're at the end of the day and you, you know, you could go over for 20 minutes and you do that as a, as a space to continue talking, but also as a gesture of just how much you care, you know, going, going to someone's graduation or going to someone's wedding, you don't have to do that. And it is a bit of a risk and eth ethics experts will say, you know, there's, there's a downside to that and you got to be careful. But if we're going to be human beings, sometimes it means, thinking about opportunities to um, emphasize how much we care and that the client isn't just a client. Um, the client is a human being and, and we're both human beings. And, and if, if going over facilitates that, then, then that can be powerful. I, I, it just has to be balanced with all the things we've been saying thus far. Yeah. Right. Wouldn't, wouldn't want to do that just impulsively. Yeah. Uh, Let's wrap it up there. What do you say, Bob? I say let's wrap it up there. So what's the final word? What do you want to tell the listeners this week? Jeez, I don't know. I'm not good at the final word. Uh, you go first. <laughs> <laughs> um, a lot of you out there are in therapy. A lot of you aren't. And for those of you who are, you deserve a space in therapy to be who you are and to be vulnerable and to be real. And so 
I say that. To you people who aren't in therapy, you deserve to have a therapist that you could be real with. You deserve to have a relationship that you could be real with. For you therapists out there, you deserve to have wonderful, meaningful sessions that feel good and you're not looking at the clock because you're bored. <laughs> and often that involves leaning into the relationship, processing your own countertransference, and really enjoying this work. I mean, it's when you're in the flow of a session, it's a wonderful experience to feel connected, to feel like you're really giving someone the sustenance that they need. And it's a two-way street, you know. It um, it just feels it. It's a you know we tend to think in this linear fashion, like, well, and people will often ask us these questions. It's like, well, how do you deal with all the emotional outlay of being a therapist? And one way to look at it is that when two people bond and and are real, they're both filled by some other substance in the universe. <laughs> You know, that it's not a transfer of energy from one person to another. It's two people creating something that they, you know, suck the marrow out of the universe and they they both get something out of it. And I do. When I was just telling my my supervisees this the other day, yesterday, that um, when when therapy when I feel like I'm in, when I feel like I'm doing a good job as a therapist, and and I'm in, I'm in the the flow. Well, no, this is what I said. What I said was, throughout my life, I've had a number of different jobs, and the th- the thing that I really noticed about myself and different jobs was how if I wanted to go out after uh, my shift, you know, if I had energy enough to go to a movie or to meet up with my friends. And there were jobs like when I was a shoe salesman at the Foot Locker at Westlake Mall, downtown Seattle, that after a 10-hour shift, I, I was on my feet all day, and it was such an emotionally sort of bummer of a job that I could not do anything after my shift. I just went home and vegged out on the couch and, and, and then went to sleep. But then fast forward, I don't know, three or four years, and I'm a therapist for 10 hours a day. And when I was in the flow of it after my shift, I'd be ready to go out with you sometimes. <laughs> be- why is that? You know, both can have their um, energy outlay, but to be a therapist means when you're in the flow and 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 you've built those kinds of relationships with clients is it's invigorating, man. Mm-hmm. It's life giving. It's inspirational. It's moving. It's Invigorating. I, I, you know, after a after a good session, I want to jump around. I'm not drained. Now, mm-hmm. I can absolutely be drained. Mm-hmm. Not to say that that's a negative thing, but um, I can absolutely be drained after uh, after a session for sure. So it's not like a, a dichotomy there or some kind of spectrum. But but I will say to you, therapists. Some of you already know this very well, but if you don't, you deserve to have the kind of therapy profession experience that I and Bob have, which is a glorious, meaningful, 
healing experience that you kind of heal in the moment too. That's my final word. What's yours, Bob? It's a great final word. Um, you know, uh, I think maybe the main or one of the main functions of your podcast is to reduce suffering. Um, and I really appreciate when people write in with these uh, painful, important questions, because it seems to me that they write in with an aim at reducing suffering in the universe. And, you know, we have this lovely opportunity to sort of kick it around and um, think out loud and um, um, be heard. And hopefully we're adding something to the universe that does reduce suffering. So I guess my final word is my hat's off to people that write in with these uh, important and personal questions. Because I believe it has that effect. Everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it. 